We will be finishing out Acts chapter 7. So our text this morning is Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 44, going through the end of the chapter, verse 60. Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 60. We've so far followed closely Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of 70 Jewish leaders. And though he's been accused of blasphemy against God by speaking against the law and the temple, Stephen does not use this opportunity to speak, to defend himself as much as he uses it as a chance to witness to the truth. So we'll look together this morning at the last part of Stephen's proclamation, including his indictment of those who sit in judgment over him. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers and until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. If you recall, Stephen has chosen to focus on one theme, this thread that weaves its way throughout the history lesson that he is offering as he recounts the story of the Hebrew people, a story familiar to all those who are listening. Stephen repeatedly points out that God is not limited to a certain place. He's a pilgrim God. God is imminent, and that word imminent means that, that he pervades his creation. He is everywhere present, but God is also transcendent, and transcendent means that God is above 
and beyond his creation. He's separate from it. So what is the point of, of Stephen pointing this out? We're about to find out. But first, we need to remember how he has decided to present the history of Israel. He chose four men, each representing a different time period in the nation's development. The first was Abraham, who was called by God to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan. The second was Joseph, who was sold as a slave to Egypt. And later, his 75 relatives would also arrive in Egypt as a part of God's plan to preserve the Hebrew people. They would multiply for 400 years in Egypt and eventually become slaves themselves. But the Lord raised up the next person Stephen focuses on, Moses, to deliver the Israelites out of their bondage. He led them to Mount Sinai where they received the law, and then Moses led them for 40 years through the wilderness. And in each case, God was with his chosen leader and with his chosen people, whether they were in Canaan, Egypt, or the wilderness. God was always on the move with his people. And now we turn to David, our final Old Testament figure, and Stephen will focus on him briefly. So verses 44 through 50, a dwelling for God, a dwelling for God. It was in the wilderness that, that God directed Moses to construct the tabernacle of testimony. Now, this was basically a heavy-duty tent. It was portable, meaning that it could easily be taken down and set up again. In fact, if you can click to the next slide, I have a picture of it. Exodus 25-27 through describes its design. The tabernacle is where God met his people. Sacrifices were brought to its outer courts, and the Lord chose to make his presence known within the inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies. And all that Stephen has said, this is the first time that an actual religious structure has been mentioned. God, who had never required a place of worship before, directed Moses exactly how to design it according to the pattern which he had seen. So this was not some haphazard design that Moses could just build any old way, any way that he desired. In fact, it was an earthly picture of God's heavenly temple. The tabernacle did not contain God. It was a reminder that God dwells with his people. So wherever the Israelites went, the tabernacle was packed up and it went with them. Moses died before entering the promised land the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Joshua succeeded him as a leader of Israel, and he was used by God to dispossess the nations whom God drove out before our fathers. That's verse 45. And under Joshua's leadership, the Hebrew people secured the whole land of Canaan, and they made it their own. And then generations passed, which Stephen does not mention, until we arrive at the most significant king of Israel, which is David. David, like Moses, delivered the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptian. Egyptians. Uh, David delivered Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so in that way, God firmly established the kingdom under David's reign. And God gave David rest on every side from his enemies. Verse 46 says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So up until this point, worship still took place at the tabernacle. 
The Israelite people now were firmly established in the land, but the Lord still, in a sense, dwelled in a temporary shelter. And so David, he purposed in his heart to build a permanent temple. However, we read in verse 48, Though the Lord approved of David's intentions, that was not to be. Verse 48, But it was Solomon, who was David's son, who built a house for him. Now what David did, he spent years gathering the materials. And Solomon was the king who actually constructed the temple. Next slide. And up until this point in Israel's history, almost a thousand years between Abraham and David, there was no permanent structure. There was no permanent structure in which God received worship. Now the temple was God's idea. God approved of it. But the point that Stephen is making is that God has been with his people wherever they went, temple or no temple. And just because God chooses to make his presence known in a certain place does not mean that he's bound to that place. The Sanhedrin who Stephen is speaking to, they got so used to the idea that worship only takes place at the temple in Jerusalem that they ignored the fact that Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David all walked with God without it. I wonder what you might have fixated upon in your own life. Is there a place or a certain time that, that you limit God to? Some Christians rightly meet with God in prayer and in scripture reading early in the morning. It's a great practice. But then they go out and they forget that God is just as present with them the rest of the day. This same idea of restricting God, it also plays out in other areas of our lives. We experience God in a certain way during a certain season of life. You know, maybe it's a powerful encounter that you had with his word. Or maybe it, it was a strong sense of his presence as you were walking through a difficult time. And it's easy to become fixated on that time or that place or that moment and to expect God to work in the same way the next time. Faith means that we trust God to do what is best in whatever season of life we find ourselves. You limit God when you expect him to do this time what he did last time. In the same way that the Jewish leaders limited God to his temple. Remember, the tabernacle, then the temple, they were God's ideas. God had his eye upon the place of worship that he himself established. But God never intended worship at the temple to be an end in and of itself. From that place of worship, prayers for all the nations were supposed to be lifted up. And Israel as a people, we talked about it earlier, Israel was supposed to be a witness of God's glory and his goodness to the nations around them. But instead of the glory of God going forth from the place of Jewish worship, the Jewish leaders, they desired to keep that glory within. They desired to keep it all to themselves. Your relationship with God, it's not private. Now, it is personal, don't get me wrong. It is personal, but your relationship with God is not private. 
your private or your personal worship, it should always overflow into public witness. Solomon built a house for the Lord. However, verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. So the temple was God's idea, made according to God's plan, but God never intended his people to limit him to a building. The temple was not in a literal sense God's house. You know, back in verse 40, we read that the golden calf was an idol worshipped as God, and it was the work of their hands. And though the temple was not an idol, it was still made by human hands. And anything made by man, even under the direction of God, is at risk of becoming an idol. And that is essentially what the Jewish leadership had done. They had exalted the place of God's worship to a place that was worshipped. They lost perspective. Stephen now points out that none of the prophets ever made this mistake. He quotes in verses 49 through 50 from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66. Now Isaiah was a prophet, yes, but Isaiah was also a priest. He loved the temple. The prophet Isaiah knew that the temple was only a stone building. It was not God's actual house. God didn't live there. Where does God live? Verse 49, Isaiah's words. Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. God dwells in heaven. God dwells on earth. There's nowhere that you can go that God is not present. Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand that made all these things? Everyone that... Stephen spoke these words of Isaiah to understood that God was the creator of heaven and earth. It's ridiculous to think that he needs a house in which to live. If he did, he wouldn't be God. Yet that's exactly what the members of the Sanhedrin implied by their attitudes. They believed that they could do something for God. They looked at their glorious temple in Jerusalem and they they swelled with pride at its glory. And in the process, they forgot their own history. The very people whom they revered, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, didn't have a temple in which to worship. They were favored by God. They walked with God and God was with them. But God met them wherever they were at, whether Mesopotamia, whether Egypt, whether Canaan, before a burning bush, in a tabernacle, in the wilderness. These four men that Stephen has spoken of knew that the only reason they were used by God is because they worshipped God wherever they found themselves. God didn't owe them anything. But they owed him everything. And they offered him their lives as living sacrifices. But the men to whom Stephen is now speaking, they'd come to believe that that God owed them something. I mean, after all, they took great care of the temple. They put on grand display following his law, following God's law. And, And they made sure, they definitely made sure these annoying, blasphemous followers of Jesus got what was coming to them. So having concluded this this history lesson, 
Stephen now calls them out. Verses 51 through 53, the indictment. Stephen was supposed to be defending himself against the charges brought against him. And up until this point, his audience assumed that he was doing just that. But in reality, Stephen was was laying the groundwork to go on the offensive. He wasn't concerned about saving his own skin. He was concerned about declaring the truth that he was about to thunder forth. And in this, to his audience anyways, this surprising and very infuriating turning of the tables, the falsely accused becomes the righteous accuser. You can almost imagine some members of the Sanhedrin beginning to nod off. Some of you just woke up when I said that. Those that, that are untuned to what Stephen's saying, that are, that are picking up on his little subtle points, at this point, they're probably even getting bored. They're distracted. And Stephen pauses. And in this pause, they, they perk up, wondering if he's about to change course. Or maybe finally winding down to a conclusion. And like a prophet of old, Stephen, he lifts his voice and he projects it across this this hall. And he projects it against these smug and these prideful men that are surrounding him. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did. It's verse 51. Back in Exodus chapter 33, the Lord told Moses to say to Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. So Stephen, what he's doing is he's taking Moses' own words and he is employing them against his audience. They're stiff-necked. That means not willing to turn their head to go in the direction that the Holy Spirit is trying to lead them in. They're unwilling to obey And then he calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. Recall back in verse 8. Stephen spoke of the covenant of circumcision that God made with Abraham. Every Jewish male was circumcised as a physical sign on the most intimate part of their bodies that they were a descendant of Abraham and chosen to inherit God's promises to Israel. So all these men that Stephen are speaking to are circumcised. He knows that. And it was an insult in Israel to be called uncircumcised. It meant you were a pagan. It meant you were outside of God's will. Yet Stephen rightly calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. You know, they might have the physical sign of being God's people, but their hearts are far from God. And their ears are closed to his truth. Why? Well, because they're doing exactly what their ancestors did. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke through the prophets to their ancestors. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? These men, boasting in Abraham and Joseph, Moses and David. Yet each of those men were moved by the very spirit they rejected. How can Stephen make these claims? Well, verse 52, because they killed those who previously announced the righteous one. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, all in their own way, they testified to the coming Messiah. Everything that God did in their lives was to prepare them 
and to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And when the, the righteous one did finally arrive, only a short time before Stephen is giving this speech, these very men sitting before Stephen, they became the betrayers and the murderers of the righteous one, the one they were waiting for. They missed him. Lest we're too hard on the Sanhedrin, we've all been in a place in our lives where we were convicted by the Holy Spirit. We knew the truth, yet we still resisted. Maybe you sat under gospel preaching for a long time before it finally dawned on you that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is more than a true story. It's a true story that has implications for your life. And you're responsible to make a decision of what you will do with Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're already a Christian, yet you kept resisting the Holy Spirit in a particular area of your life. You knew what you were doing with sin. Maybe you're at that point today. God's appraisal of, of what you're doing in secret or what you're thinking in your mind or harboring in your heart is that it is sin. It goes against his moral character. It grieves him. And the Holy Spirit is pursuing you, yet you're resisting. The thing about resisting God's convicting voice is that our hearts grow harder and our ears grow duller the more that we resist. So I beg you, if you're in that position today, stop resisting. You don't want to find yourself in a place where you no longer sense the Holy Spirit stiff-necked. Being uncomfortable, even if you're uncomfortable as I'm saying these things, is a sign that God is still able to reach you. You should be concerned when you're no longer bothered by what clearly used to bother you. Stephen was accused of speaking against the law in the temple, but notice what he accuses his accusers of. They are guilty of sinning against the Holy Spirit and the Messiah. If you reject the Holy Spirit, then you reject the one whom the Holy Spirit reveals, namely Jesus. If you reject Jesus, then you reject the Father. And if you reject the Father, there's no hope for you, either in this life or the next. But there is one more thing that Stephen accuses them of rejecting. Verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, if there was one thing besides the land and besides the temple that Stephen's accusers boasted in, it was the law. They patterned their lives around it. They made a good show of keeping it. They prided themselves on how well everything looked on the outside. The outside of the cup was clean. It was immaculate. It looked nice. They knew the law. They knew how to explain the law. And they were not ashamed to use the law of God as a hammer to condemn others. And what does Stephen declare? You received the law, yet you did not keep it. How can he even make that claim? Well, he made it like this, because by rejecting Jesus, they rejected the law. And let me show you why that's the case. The law is holy and perfect and good, Romans 7. The law is holy and perfect and good. And that is the reason that when you 
try to keep the law, you realize that you are not holy and perfect and good. The law is like a mirror. It shows you your sin. You look into a mirror to see the dirt that's on your face. And you look at the law to see the dirt that's on your soul. The law says, do not commit adultery. Yet, your lustful thoughts reveal you've done just that, if only in your heart. The law says, do not bear false witness. Yet, any lie you've ever told reveals that you are, in fact, a liar. Me too. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? Just one. The law says, you shall have no other gods before me. Yet, anything you've ever placed before God in importance in your life reveals that you've broken the first commandment. The law is good. You are not. And the purpose of the law is to reveal this fact to you. That's its job. So if you try to save yourself by keeping the law, by being good, you will only discover how condemned you actually are before God. The longer you stare into a mirror with a dirty face, the more dirt that you see. You don't use that mirror to get the dirt off. It's not what the mirror is for. The law was not given to save you and me. The law was given to reveal our sinfulness. And Stephen said to these very law-abiding Jewish leaders, you do not keep the law. <laughs> what do you mean? Of course we keep the law. We've always kept the law. Oh yeah? Let me show you what it means to keep the law. There's only one person born of a woman who has ever kept the law. And he is the one whom you rejected. Jesus Christ lived a life in perfect conformity to the law. He kept it in thought. He kept it in word. He kept it in deed. And he always put God first. Always. He never uttered a lie. Never entertained a lustful thought. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. The bad news is that you've broken the law. The good news is that Jesus kept the law in your place. You did not keep it, but Jesus did. And not only did Jesus live the life that you should have lived, he died the death that you should have died, or that you should die. The one who never broke the law died the death of a lawbreaker. He was crucified for sins that he did not commit. He died to take the punishment that you and me have earned. He didn't earn it. You've not kept the law. I've not kept the law. The Jewish leaders did not keep the law, but Jesus did. And because of his death and resurrection, you have the opportunity to stand before God forgiven of everything that you've ever done. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord views you as if you lived the life that Jesus lived. Think about that. The Lord views you in Christ as if you lived the life that Jesus lived. Is God satisfied with me as a Christian? Is God satisfied with Jesus? Then if you're a Christian, he's satisfied with you. God credits the righteousness of Jesus, not your righteousness, you don't have any, 
God credits the righteousness of Jesus to your account when you place your faith in him. And at the same time, God credits your unrighteousness to Jesus' account. There's a transfer that takes place. His righteousness goes into your account. Your unrighteousness, it goes into his. And what happens to your unrighteousness? Well, he already died to pay the price of that. He died to pay the price of your unrighteousness. So what happens the moment of your salvation is that your sins are canceled by Jesus' death and you receive a right standing before God through Jesus' resurrection. He died your death and he gives you his life. The great transfer. If you're a Christian and you ask yourself, does God love me? Does the Father love the Son? Yes, he does. Is the Father satisfied with me? Is the Father satisfied with the Son? Yes, he is. Verses 54 through 60, we see a witness in heaven. A witness in heaven. It was at this very point, as Stephen finishes speaking, that the members of the Sanhedrin had an opportunity to repent, but they could not stand to hear that they were lawbreakers. And so it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They could not contain their fury at having been told the truth. And like their forefathers rejected Moses, they rejected the Messiah spoken of by Moses. And look at the, the sharp contrast between the bitter rage of the Sanhedrin and Stephen's composure. You know, we've already noted back in chapter 6, verse 5, that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He lived his life in the presence of God. And here in verse 55 of chapter 7, we see that Stephen is still full of the Spirit. The man who fears God, or the woman who fears God, does not fear even the worst of what man can do to them. The text reads that Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Notice what Stephen's focus is upon. He's not looking at his circumstances. They're not looking very good. He's not looking at his own resources or his own strength in this moment of trial. He's not looking for somebody to rescue him. He's gazing intently toward Jesus. His faith was so strong that he was given a glimpse right into heaven itself. That's what's happening here. I think about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. It's written of him that he walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch walked so closely with God in faith that one day he was walking down the road and the next minute he was walking in heaven. Stephen gazed so intently with faith into heaven that he literally saw Jesus, his Lord, the one for whom he was willing to lay down his life. And if you remember, Stephen began his speech with the glory of God. It was the God of glory who appeared to Abraham. And now Stephen ends his speech himself gazing upon the same glory that Abraham had the privilege to experience. Only this time it is Jesus. The radiance of God's glory. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And that's what Stephen sees. And what is Jesus doing? Don't miss this. He's not sitting at the right hand of God. 
That's what we would expect. Hebrews 1.3 also tells us that when Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A king sits when he executes judgment. A king sits when he rules from his throne. But Jesus is not sitting at this moment. He's standing. Stephen exclaims, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So why is Jesus now standing? I'll tell you why. Jesus is standing as a witness in Stephen's defense. Jesus said to his disciples back in Luke chapter 12, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Jesus is not ashamed to call Stephen his own. He is standing in order to welcome his faithful servant into the glory of his Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. At the same time, these words of Stephen that we see in verse 56, they were the final straw as far as the men of the Sanhedrin were concerned. Stephen said aloud what? I see the Son of Man. That title, Son of Man, is straight out of the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, you're used to hearing it from reading the Gospels. Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man. But Jesus got that from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel prophesied, I kept looking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We might miss that. We might miss what's happening here, but Stephen's accusers, I guarantee you, they did not. Stephen just identified this recently crucified Jesus of Nazareth with the Messiah. Stephen just said that Jesus is the one whom Daniel spoke of, who will what? Rule over the nations eternally. And as far as his accusers were concerned, that was blasphemy. Stephen just said that Jesus was Lord, equal with God. And that was too much. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. So imagine this, this huge mass of furious men putting their hands over their ears, trying to keep the, what they thought were blasphemous words out. And they're crashing upon Stephen like a wave, driving him out of their chambers and out into the city into a place of execution. Though they had no legal authority to put Stephen to death, at this point, they're really too bloodthirsty to care. Normally under Old Testament procedure, when a person was stoned, the guilty would be stripped, and then they'd be pushed off of a ledge. There are specific places that this took place. And if the fall did not kill the victim, then large stones would be dropped from that ledge on his chest until he died. It says in verse 58, in this case, the witnesses laid aside their robes. An innocent man was being stoned. Instead of Stephen being stripped, as was the custom, the false accusers stripped themselves. Basically, they are confessing their own guilt in this action. And even as Jesus committed his spirit to his Father from the cross, 
Stephen commits his spirit into the hands of Jesus and the one who stood as an advocate for his faithful servant now receives him into his eternal kingdom. And then instead of confessing his sins, Stephen confesses the sins of those unjustly putting him to death. Driven to his knees, bleeding from from gashes in his flesh, bruised by stones, still being pelted, dying, Stephen forgets about himself and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And though they should have known better, Stephen's accusers thought they were doing a service to God by killing his servant. The last line says, having said this, he fell asleep. What a beautiful way to describe death. For the believer, death is the doorway to eternal rest. Stephen's earthly life, it did not end well. But his heavenly life began with King Jesus standing to welcome his servant into his reward. Let me ask you, is eternal rest what you look forward to and what you expect? Can you say with confidence that maybe not that dying is welcome. None of us want to go through the process of dying. But is death something that you would welcome? Do you see it as simply falling asleep? And so the one who died for you receives you into his eternal kingdom. Most people go their whole lives terrified of death, and rightly so. Because if Jesus is not welcoming you into his is not welcoming you into his kingdom, then you're not bound for his kingdom. And the thought of what lies after this life, in eternity, separated from God, for those who will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, that thought is rightly terrifying. Or for Stephen, it was not. A brutal moment but a beautiful moment. So with this opportunity we have this morning and beholding this faithful witness of this man of God, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. 